0: This is a UC Public Policy Channel program from the Goldman School of Public Policy at UC Berkeley. Visit us at www.uctv.tv public-policy for more discussion on solutions for the good of all. I'm David Beckman, and I'm pleased to introduce Eric Sapp. He is the founder and president of Public Democracy. Digital technology has had some bad effects on our politics and our religious life. But Eric is a pioneer in the use of digital technology and artificial intelligence for good purposes. He's recruited a lot of uh, faith-based voters for um, good causes, often progressive causes, and he's also uh, using it to empower disenfranchised people to express what they want, what they believe, and have an impact on the things that are important to them. I first saw the power of digital technology when Eric worked with Bread for the World in 2016 in the elections. Bread for the World sent uh, little digital ads to, to 26 million voters in 10 swing states, about 2 million voters took action in response. But what really surprised me was that even even the people who never took any action just saw those little ads, Um, those people in large numbers, more of those people said that um, hunger is an important issue. It's an important election issue. The big technology companies have shaped social media to make money for themselves. But what Eric's been doing, you'll see through a series of uh, experiences, he's been following a different principle that, um, that technology should be used not just to sell people things or sell people ideas, but especially to listen to them and to learn from them what's really important to them. I think we need to get our government to figure out ways to make this kind of digital technology much more widespread. Eric Sapp. There is one other element to the story you told, David, that's, that's really important and it
1: we reflect on some of the things we're doing now too. It wasn't just support. There was... Um, I think I remember these numbers right, but it was about 12 percent of the population that opposed that said the federal government had no role in combating hunger. And to me back then, one of the most significant pieces of that was that number went from 12 to 2 percent based on these uh, engagements. And this, especially with a lot of the work we've been doing recently on countering disinformation side, is a really important Piece to understand as well. It's not just, hey, how do we convince people that we're right or how do we win up or mostly, you know, what it's being done a lot right now, rev up our base to get more angry or more whatever. A lot of it is it opens up opportunities to engage and open conversations with others. And we're also working, I'll talk about you know, these the these two, the two new big things. We're doing a big campaign on vaccine hesitancy, uh, which is the same concept. And um, uh, we're, I, we, we, I think we'll have an interesting conversation on the, on the whole va- vaccine piece, but the the core of what we're doing there, um, and we're working with Urban League and National Minority Equality Forum and Congressional Black Caucus and others to uh, address um, uh, vaccine hesitancy, particularly in the African-American community, but m- more broadly as yeah. well, was um, all the campaigns that are being run right now were run out of like their vaccine hesitancy campaigns and everyone said how do we get people to get vaccinated that's what we want so my goal in the campaign is I need to get these people who don't want to get vaccinated to get vaccinated and that's why they're not working because communication is can never be it's not what I want to say it's what are people able to hear and to bring it real quick down to the all the MDivs and everybody here in this context, <laughs> it is relational. And um, well, you can even talk like to me as I've looked in, in data and the way that we engage, almost incarnational in this idea of our goal is understanding. And it's when you establish deep understanding, and with the way we engage digitally as well, which is very different from traditional ad tech we meet people in the moments where everything we're doing is about meeting a need not reshaping a behavior and so our vaccine hesitancy campaign that we were with these groups and then kaiser came in to fund um the effort we were brought on to find the people who were hesitant and engage in those moments that was kind of the initial part we were brought into And we were supposed to send them to the best practices. Hey, CDC will have literature on this. Some of the health (laughs) groups have literature. And we looked at what people were engaging, and we looked at this stuff. And it's like, oh, you're hesitant. You should get vaccinated for your family. Well, I'm hesitant because I don't (laughs) believe this is good for me. That's that's going to be pointless. And don't pressure me. Or now there's this big thing on future regret ideas. You don't want to kill grandma. Well, you know, I don't, this, this, I'm serious. This is like now, like this is the, the, like a lot of academia. This is what we got to do to fix this problem. Um, It's like, no, give them information. They don't like, just give them resources, meet them where they are, let them. And so our, our whole thing, we, it's our vaccine, your decision. And one of our ads was find out if the vaccine's right for you. And like health, be, you can't, what do you mean? How can it not be right for them? And it's like, well, they're questioning right now. We need to meet them in this place. And when they're hesitant, like if you're African-American, a good reason to have some concerns about whether these things are represented or whatever. But you know what? This was the first vaccine trial ever that was fully inclusive. One in three participants were people of color. Um, it's been tested and we've all seen the like reporting on the testing as well, like, oh, 30,000 people in Moderna trial or whatever, over 200,000 Americans have participated in this trial because we tested a bunch and you help people understand that. And then if you're hesitant because, well, I know people like me are never included fully. I have these bad experiences and you see that I'm not saying you're wrong to have those bad experiences. And I'm not saying this is totally safe. You should do it. But I'm giving you, you now have these little bits of information that help. And another big piece is we showed people who did the vaccine. And Dr. Corbett, who was behind the NIH um, creator of the vaccine, well, she looks like the blacks, you know, that vaccine hesitant community, African American woman, the head of the American Medical Association, who was responsible for oversight on and like the. The medical outside approval on the process and, and these pieces was happened providentially to be the first ever <laughs> African-American woman to head AMA during this period. And we can show here the people behind the vaccine. And again, that's not saying, hey, it's absolutely right. But for that concern of how do I know they're not just going to experiment on me and all that stuff? You don't but do you think she would because she did it and it just starts a different sort of um of of, of conversation i was uh a poli-sci major in college um i'm a pk uh but had as that there we go um as that you know you grow up as one and you're always asked "Well, so are you going to be you know my dad are you going to be a teacher like your dad and i actually i always said no which was interesting thing but i just never felt that was you know i never felt called to that and you know had that context as a kid to, to, to that and then i went to college and i went to davidson and i, and I, I played football there too and i was president of fellowship christian athletes and um i started you know, take way too long to, 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 to get through the call story side but long story short i i through that role, started to increasingly get all kinds of questions and re- that realized as a 19-year-old, I was ill-equipped to answer on, my grandmother died, let's talk, or why is this thing about the Bible? So there was a learning side to it. But I also saw, I played football, I was on student government, and I was an RA, how many people were coming to me and saying, you know, I go to church, I just, but you I feel like I can talk to you, like you understand me, and I, I just don't feel that way about. Like I don't know my pastor that well, that there was a real opportunity for ministry outside of service. I mean, out out outside of the um, uh, parish, and so that was part of what took me to divinity school, um, and I got a master public policy as well uh, there, where I felt this calling to that ministry. In other service, um, and that's where I was moving. And um, I actually worked. I worked at the Pentagon, uh, and had originally thought I was going to be doing more in the kind of peacekeeping and State Department sort of line. Um, realized that the executive branch side was very. You were able to make a big difference, a big on a very small point, and I wanted to do do more. Uh, And ended up going to the Hill and worked for Senator Kennedy out of um, grad school on the health committee, which was an incredible experience. Uh, And then from there to the House, uh, where I worked for Congressman David Price, who's a Yale div grad. And that's part of why I made that move um, and was due and started the nascent first Democratic faith working group on the House. So, Peter, to like and then jump forward now to your question. I did my first campaign in 2004 where I ran the coordinated campaign um, field in, in North Carolina, back at I mean, Duke, div, uh, back at Duke. So, and where I'd worked as a youth pastor for three years, I knew a lot of the pastors and this was the God gap year where the um, best indicator you're going to vote for Bush in 2004 was that you went to church on a weekly basis. And I had, a bunch, uh, more than more than party ID, it was, did you go to church on a weekly basis? And I had all these Christian friends, as I'm organizing <laughs> and doing, who said, you know, Eric, I'm going to vote for Kerry, but I also don't feel like they want me. I feel like there's not a place for me in the party. I'd experienced that pretty heavily in my work on the Hill, um, that there would, I would often be introduced. He has, a, he, he went to Vinnie school, but he's okay um sort of thing i I, I literally had policy taken away from me in the committee staff because i was a christian and so i couldn't be trusted um by others and uh so like i i got that and to me it was this idea democrats shouldn't be losing on the bible um and but to your question peter i my goal set out was not to make christians democrat or to make, sit this vote. But what I argued, I left the Hill and started the first firm working with Democrats on faith outreach was we need, you all need to fund me to make Christians the perpetual swing voters. Because right now they're voting 80% Republican on these weekly church attenders. America doesn't think that's right. We don't think they're right. If they go to 70%, we've got perpetual governing majorities moving forward forever. Actually, at that point, a 5% swing in the white Christian vote would have been equivalent to 100% African-American turnout at the polls. And like, there was all this attention on the one. It's not that you do the one instead of the other, but you see elections are about math. And to ignore all that low hanging fruit was I thought, a mistake. And so we went in and took this is this was my foundation, which is carries over into our data. Now we came in and I said what we need to do is like we're not going to win these people over by lecturing at them or trying to preach or I can't write a bunch of speeches for you candidate convincing people you, these Christians need to vote for me. And they're not voting for us because we're kind of looking up our looking down our nose at them and we haven't been including them. We need to listen. And so we set up and I worked in 2006 on Jennifer Grant. I I was in senior office in Granholm, Ted Strickland, uh, Governor Sebelius, uh, Sherrod Brown, um, Tim Kaine uh, and all and the Michigan Democratic Party, North Carolina Democratic Party, Oregon Democratic Party, all. Because Democrats were desperate, we, this was like a 2010, we were out of everything. And they had nothing better to do than to trust a 20-some-year-old without much experience, but had these ideas. And we said, we need to hold listening meetings. And I am going to tell you candidates, you're coming in and all you get to do is ask questions. No stump speeches, no nothing. We get it sponsored by a pastor that invites people in and our goal is to listen. And our goal is to ask. And we were coming into these, you know, these pro-life settings, these very conservative settings. held in Michigan, we held 125 of them, mostly in western Michigan. And Michigan's a great example because at the end of that uh, series, we were creating really good. If you're familiar with Michigan, the CRC, Christian reform and Reformed church of America, which are pretty evangelical um, conservative CRC in particular. And we were meeting with their heads, their mega church leaders, everybody. And I knew all of them. I had them all on my cell phone. Now uh, they'd met with Granholm and others and they were, we were moving past listening to like, they were wanting to engage and we're like, we're, I bet they're going to ask us if they can do something now. We need to think of it. And the Democratic Party was about to write, rewrite its platform. So I told the party chair who'd been, Mark Brewer, who'd been in all these meetings, I'm like, we should offer to let him help draft the platform. And because he'd been in this meeting, he said, I bet they could do the preamble. I bet we could figure this out. And most of it is still up. The preamble of the Democratic Party platform was written by pro-life, traditional family, evangelical pastors and Catholic priests. And um, it is beautiful. We we like, you know, helped organize it and work, but they were willing to work with us to say this is what where we share these values. And if you all are giving us voice, we want to help. And, you know, what evangelical pastors are pretty good at is articulating these visions like that's what the church has done. It can tell a story, it can get people motivated, it can speak to these heartstrings. And Mark Brewer, who was the DNC chair at the time, vice chair at the time, at the convention the next year stood up and told the story where he said, so we did this thing, I thought it was beautiful. I put it forward, it got voted, it got passed. And the next morning I sat down in my office after it had been published and I opened up my email. And the first five emails I had, I knew who they were from. All of them were our atheist, sectarian, you know, elements of the party. And in the subject line and each one of them, there was something about party platform preamble. And I knew who had written it. And I was like, okay, here it comes. And he says, and I opened it up and one after the other, they said, thank goodness. We're finally speaking with conviction about what it means to be a Democrat. (laughs) And to these people who were not Christian, because we found those core values, I mean, we could be, we could be using stuff from a hymn, but we didn't say it was from him. And whenever I worked with, um, with candidates, like, you don't quote chapter and verse, if, if you're gonna, you can use Jesus, if you know it, and if it's appropriate and authentic, the people in the crowd know it, if you start trying to tell them all the verses, not only does it get cumbersome, but it looks like you're trying too hard. Use it when it's natural and the people who it's natural for will recognize it. And the other people will say, oh, that's a pretty good idea that 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 resonates. And so that's what we did in 2006. Our candidates outperformed other Democrats um, by 20 points with white Protestants, by 15 with Catholics. Bob Casey was another one. We beat Santorum using these approaches. The speech that Casey gave at Catholic University was picked up and carried on every Catholic radio station around the country. 200 unique stories were written about it. And that difference in that swing was determinative in every single one of those those races, which then you all may remember this brief little glimpse. Like and so it was we would cover New York Times, Time Magazine on Colbert, all these things, and all of a sudden, hey, Democrats can do faith and values. And I got um, I led the D trips Red to Blue program in two thousand eight, which was the title. It was Values Vets Victory was the kind of name that they gave to it, and um, worked with another forty candidates. We saw similar outcomes there. Um <laughs> Pew Forum wrote uh John Um is who is the guy at, at Pew, David? Do you remember? Uh, I'm blanking out. But their their main leader on faith, faith work back then. They published this big study on the elections on these communities where they said, What Democrats have done in the faith community, if they maintain this, will guarantee like This has established a line across the country that will usher in, and we had them, these uh, veto-proof, filibuster-proof majorities moving forward, if they're able to maintain this piece. And then we won. In 2008, there were 22 state parties that had stat Democratic state parties that had faith outreach staff, that like almost all of them were people that I trained and worked with. And again, what we did was out, we did listening meetings, we did conversations, we found things we started. Another key piece to this um, was in 2008, we rolled out the volunteer tithing program, where um, I was like, we are generating in our grassroots capacity Hundreds and hundreds of millions of hours of volunteer time and raising all this money, all to just get one person elected in each case. Let's tie 10% of it to community service. And we were told, and the first did it with Tom Perry. I managed Tom Perriello's race, who was in Virginia, ended up being the, the biggest upset in 2008, Central Southern Virginia. And the, the, the all the smart consultants said you can't do like that's a waste. You can't waste those resources on. Yeah, I know you did well in 2006, but this touchy feel good stuff. You gotta, yeah, you, know, you gotta use it. You can't waste your money. And I was like, well, this is we're talking about service all the time. We're talking. We're gonna have to be mobilizing these grass top leaders in six months, where we're gonna be coming around door to door and or you know, black churches too saying, hey, you need to mobilize your people for us. What better way than to have been serving in their soup kitchens for the five months beforehand and what we learned from the listening means like you do the stuff for the people and then you're not like, they know who you are. There's no better way to meet these leaders and prove that you care about them and understand what the people want than to serve beside them. And so we launched that program and it turned into not a waste of volunteer time. Every campaign that did it saw a dramatic increase in volunteer participation because, you know what, surprise it may turn out, it's a lot easier to ask your friend to come help for the first time at the Habitat home than why don't we all sit down and call a bunch of strangers and ask them to give money to the campaign like as shocking as that was to the consultants we had these monster volunteer armies that were all said they came in the most exciting part was the volu- was the tithing and the service mm. and then they stayed and they knocked on doors and they turned people out and who runs all the service opportunities like well it's the pastors it's the local leaders it was everyone we needed in the fall. And so by the time we got there, it wasn't, Hey, let me tell you why I should, why you should vote for me. It was them saying, Hey, remember these people that have been serving beside and like, and like, of course, again, once it starts working, all the consultants come in, you got to put your button on, make sure you're like, no, (laughs) they will figure it out. Our goal is not to speak. Our goal is to serve. Boom wins. So we win in 2008 and all of a sudden we've won history. And you know what? To a T, we don't need to talk to those people anymore. The Obama folks came in and a month after the election, they shut down every single faith outreach office in the country. And we shifted the focus to now we can finally we've won enough. We can we can do what we need to. (laughs) We can force it. And, and this is, this is why I said, it's actually a good, it's my uh, origin story into data. And I was in some pretty big, you know, I was in some significant conversations in this space and, and they'd say, and I'm like, why aren't we doing, those people wouldn't vote for us. I'm like, they just did. Like we, we have, we have, we, they voted like months ago. And it's like, no, no, our data tells us they won't. And I'm like, what are you talking about? We we have election data. And it's like, no, 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 our data tells us this because all the data they were using was demography data and consumer data. And so as they were building up these new systems, they were only viewing people through the lens of how you're born and what you buy. And these holes in the data that were created from that, and obviously you can say I'm a white guy, but like I was getting really uncomfortable with these conversations that were saying the, the way we were targeting all of our mobilization, our issues and everything was if you were black, we know what matters to you. We know what you care about, and we will get your vote if we talk about this. If you are brown skin, we know what you care about. It's immigration reform. We give you immigration reform, check. If you're a woman, yep, it's abortion. We know what you care about, check. That's the woman's issue. The only group that, in our own strategies, we said, let's try to understand what's happened in their life to know and what, how they identify themselves now to decide how to win them were people that looked like me. And so for all these other groups, we knew their issues. And like, we all know the, I mean, we've heard the language that these are the issues, I mean, that, that apply. And the underlying assumption in that is that there's one group that as soon as you're born, you kind of know. And they're the only other ones we didn't were like white men, which was, which again, as a Democrat, seemed very alien. So our mission had always been, I fought a lot of fights in that and had a lot of scars from it. Uh, Our mission was always to align what's right with what works. And that goes back to, if you read the Embracing the Gray piece, that's, you know, I'm a Calvinist uh, reformed. Like it's that there has to be, it's not enough. And because of the privilege I'm aware of too, and that I've enjoyed, like it's a stewardship piece. The luxury of saying I lost the good fight is not something I feel I can, like that's not something I can bear in our work. That I we can't, we have to be able to compromise on things. We have to be able to figure out a way to make it work because I will go home to a perfectly good house and salary and the people that we are speaking on behalf of don't have that luxury. And so often we were seeing this divide, which happened in Democratic and a lot of progressive politics over that last decade, which quite frankly justified, not justified, but set up a lot of Trump. Was this, it was more the economic pieces and what Brad had talked about and the unwillingness for all of us with our advanced degrees at places like Berkeley, but like, you know, all on the coasts. That are really woke and wake up and understand these things. Who were not like we were okay fighting fights that ah yeah we we were pu- pure but we lost as the country was just most of the country was just getting slaughtered and worrying and opioids and all these sort of things. So I actually wrote an exit memo in 2010 that right before the election that became like very Cassandra-esque, maybe I'll I'll send that in in our next, before our next class, because it was talking about a lot of the stuff that ended up happening by the time Trump came around, saying, if we continue down this path, and it was, again, like, I was a white guy, but I was talking, our faith program, when I was doing faith work, um, I was told Democrats had a program for black churches. It was our base turnout. It was GOTV. And I was always told very clearly, you know, stay in your lane. We've got that taken care of. So you deal with the white churches. And as we'd start going without fail, the black, the pastors would, because their pastors would start saying, like, I want to be in that guy's program because he's coming earlier and he's treating me as a pastor, not a GOTV operative. And so I was hearing all these different pieces as we were moving and said, so, okay, 2010s come around, we're moving away from the party stuff to the organizing. We need to start developing data that helps a fuller understanding of who people are. And what we saw at the core of so much of this was the values that motivate us to come together. And when you look at people through their shared values and beliefs It's a very important way to understand and connect with them, but it also just gives you a different perspective on who they are. You see that white evangelicals can be one and you don't have to sell out your beliefs to do it. You just need to engage in different ways and also different minority groups. If you just treat them all the same, you will lose some. And you will rightly lose some because because of what you're doing. So we started in that concept with the data. And then that brought us much more into the digital engagement space. But from 2009 until this last election, I didn't do anything in democratic uh, politics. There wasn't a place for what we were doing. And even as we were developing our data, Catalyst, which is the largest Democratic voter file in 2012, and because I knew the directors there, we said, hey, we've got this really important thing. And I think we can make I think it can become the modelable data that could be an overlay on the voter file. And she believed it. And so she gave us, you know, anyone else to use it it was a quarter of a million dollar a year. subscription and tasked her back that it was not algorithms. It was PhDs modelers to work with us to create these faith models, which became the first ones that ever worked. And they were, came online for 2012 and 2014 and where they worked and a lot of others didn't was it was values-based. It wasn't, we didn't try to model a Presbyterian because you know, or a Methodist, a Methodist in Mississippi looks very different from a Methodist in Massachusetts. And my goal wasn't to, again, categorize people, was to connect with them. So we found these core values pieces that, that then quickly we realized it was more than faith and these applied outside. So Catalyst created these models. This is the Democratic voter file. They validated these models. We had buy-in from the top to push these. And after 2014, they said, we're just going to have to, and like, there's not a point in keeping your contract. We couldn't find a single person willing to use them in our advocacy group or the, the campaign side, because this just isn't what, what you know, because of this cultural divide. So we kind of went from being in the wilderness to having this outreach to then going back. And then, um, but this last cycle, we ended up um doing a big push on the disinformation counter disinformation space we did all of black lives matters uh digital get out the vote um we then created and spun up the evangelicals for biden group using those same tools and pieces and we focused on michigan and georgia and so to Uh, There you go. Now you get me going long stories and we see what happens 15 minutes after you start the what happened in 2006, where we saw these shifts, and then it everyone's lost. And we all know evangelicals and boy, the harm to the Christian witness with this sellout to, to Trump. And we know they are sold out, they're doing whatever. We had a 17 point swing in the white evangelical vote in Michigan. It was absolutely determinative. In Georgia, I think it was a 12-point swing. That was different. There were a lot of other things that make the difference. There was a lot of good work that made that difference. But without that, we would not have won those states.
0: How has the digital revolution changed American religion and politics? And um, how can it make our, our, if our spirituality and politics are, are in trouble, <clears throat> how can the digital revolution Help us get out of trouble.
1: With our own data that we had, which I don't call so much our data anymore, we had these very large data sets on 100 million Americans on these core values. I told you why we are creating them to counter the systems. And we were doing a campaign on climate. And I saw, I was watching our dashboard and there were 2 million people engaging in this moment on something I'd written a week ago and taking actions of engaging their members of Congress and sharing with their friends about this piece. And I had this very deep, all of a sudden, this understanding, it's it's in one of the Medium posts, but that what we were dealing with was not ones and zeros. It wasn't data, it wasn't a way to sell people, that every one of those data points we had represented a moment of, of hope and intent that someone had and because of our campaigns where someone felt they could make a difference and were acting and that that collection of moments was really nigh on to sacred that the idea like the early church believed in the eucharist and communion that we literally went out of space and time to be in communion with all the saints and what Technology and data allows us, and I do this with churches. You know, when I talk to churches about it, is we actually have a way to engage people outside of space and time. And that, like, when we talk about how does God, when asked to explain and define, I am. It is in the moment and the present, and theologically, like if you get into dimensional theory and everything, a lot. It's remarkable how effective the idea of eternity and other things are not that hard to explain. If you think of a fourth dimensional perspective on our world that is removed from space and time and data allows us to create those connections and technology allows us to create those connections. That sermon that you wrote. Could be the perfect sermon for someone two years from now, and in our current environment, like you don't get to give it then.
0: Mainly, you mainly mainly talked about the faith communities. What about uh, how do, how does the digital revolution affected our politics, and how is it going to fix our politics? Will right now in our politics, if
1: George Soros gives a million dollars for a campaign, maybe. $200,000 of that is spent on the actual ads. By the time the admin cut is taken from the nonprofit that got it and they hire their consultants who take the cut and they hire their consultants and it goes into the digital space, there's a reason um, Beto, Beto Rourke, like we all saw, like his, he said all these huge fundraising numbers, he raised whatever it was, $87 million from small donors. Isn't this amazing? He spent $67 million raising that $87 million out of state. So he raised $87 million. He spent most of that money talking to people who weren't his voters, who already agreed with them to get him to give more money. That wasn't because Beto had some great strategy. That's because everyone in the middle of that was taking a cut. And the current cuts in the digital market are about 60% margins. So that's why our, that's one of the big reasons our system's not working. And it's also part of my stepping out of the system for, for a while. And that system feeds itself. That's where the digital market is broken right now in the democratic space. It's why Biden turns over fundraising to small donor dollar donors because of those same systems until that's fixed. We're going to continue to have broken. We're going to have a brokenness there because this it's too skewed in the, the needs and priorities. And it's why Democrats, you know, continue to be willing to lose, to do the same old things. It is really having been in it deeply in it and watched it, and watched all the back dealing and the, I'll hire you for this campaign, but you need to give me 10% of everything you get paid as a standard. That's, that's what's kind of, that's one of the brokenness in our system. It was one of the things working with Fair Fight. That was just amazing. I've never worked with a more dedicated, smarter organization. Everything they were about was about impacts, new things like look what happened to Stacey Abrams in Georgia in the last election and their entire mantra was, we can't win with just our people. Those same people who like were cheating, doing whatever. I've got to find a way to win over some of those voters. And that was such a foreign concept in democratic politics until she started really pushing it and living it. And we now have a Senate majority as a, as a result. So there's, I think in our politics, it happened on the Republican side, too, with the margins like this system is is really inefficient in breaking. That's the opportunity is that as people decide it's the technology becomes easier for normal people to use. And at some point, (laughs) at some point, enough people are going to want to win that they're going to realize that they can be much more effective with it. And when they do. The solution is like you don't run an $80,000 phone poll to decide what to decide what you're, you know, with 60 second questions in each of them to decide what you're going to put on a 10 word banner. You run 90 of those 10 word banners into the community and you use those, you know, 100 million impressions as your focus group to decide what those people need to hear and learn and that system can improve. The faith community is, should be sitting when done right at this nexus of what people value and the service model. There's obviously twisted versions, you know, even when to Q is quasi now um, faith, but I'm talking about what I'd consider more legitimate um, faith groups. Uh, that's same as when Democrats, when I first started, in 04, we're like, we don't know, we're lost. We we need a way to win, we need a way to connect to people. What is it? The you know, there's an opportunity for faith community and you see it in the organizers. You know, we call we delineate like community organizers, Democrats, especially when going to Black. You know, oh, those are community organizers. They're safe, they're good, they're just nice community organizers. Obviously, a lot of them are people of faith, they're faith groups, they're doing it for faith but you put the community organizer label on it, all the groups that are serving on the ground have a special value because they understand the market, whether that's business, political, whatever. And the system shift is going to be the tipping point of the decision makers, the power brokers and the people with money either not having another choice, but to do that, but to re- reach out and understand those people or having that value. So apparent that they um, claim it on their, their own. This is, we were working on COVID and mapping um, uh, COVID spread. And I've touched on this a little bit before when we started seeing strange patterns in the behavior and data, especially around minorities that let us say why this is not organic and Long story short, we started digging, and we started digging with the tools we had. And what we uncovered was this vast disinformation network. And interestingly, because we were trying to understand people and intent instead of trying to find misinformation, turned out we were much better at finding misinformation and the connections between it because it was targeting people and intent. And so we mapped out this massive network that um, ended up putting us in charge of most of the progressive um, response and working with government leaders and others in combating what the Russians and alt-right were doing in the last election and the runoff. This is an example of the scope. Each of these red dots is is a completely controlled face propaganda news site, local news site that we identified through this system. You see the spread, you see the focus. Each of these was creating content on misinformation. Here's kind of an example of what these sites would be. Part of how we found it is you'll also see they all had a common address and they were all created around the same time. So once again, once we backed into some, it was easier then to find that pattern and move to others. This is an important slide in that um, this shows how disinformation is working, which shows how the system actually works and why, if anything you're doing, we're going to talk about Google Grants, it's so important to understand the system. The Biden campaign, if during the election, if you went to Kamala Harris' website, if you went to Joe Biden info, the first thing you would see on Google was a propaganda misinformation site. And the reason for that was that, it wasn't like, and this, that Joe Biden was using search, they were using search to raise small dollar donors. This is a problem by the way, you know, David and others that like, the nonprofit community deals with a lot. We look at our members and our supporters as funders and small donors, like, what do we, well, they are people who will do things for us instead of understanding what is it we can do for them and how do we move beyond the people that are just kind of willing to give periodically to bring in a much larger, larger community the Biden campaign was using search to run small dollar donors. They were, that was then optimizing their search campaign for sites, locations, and keywords that would drive small dollar donation. As they were doing that, they were then moving away from keywords that weren't getting a lot of people that were willing to give. Some of those keywords were keywords. The reason was those were words being used more by persuadable, broader community voters, not just the, the base, And because the Biden campaign didn't want to compete with itself in search, the Biden campaign ceded all of the search space to their fundraising arm. So when the fundraising arm gave up certain areas to advertise against and teach Google that people in that area want to go to our site, they ceded that entire space completely. There was nobody advertising on these terms in the 2020 election if you can believe it so guess what the disinformation purveyors did they started optimizing to those terms and they started creating more and more content to affect those terms and so as people saw their stuff they went more and more to their website so they went to kamalaharris.info to see all of this attack information and the more they went there the more google showed it to them so by the fall the whole system was set up so that um, if you search those terms, you saw this propaganda and it was worst for the reasons we talked last time about economically, the system knows the least about minorities and poor people. And so those were the people the system was most likely to be influenced by to show um, these propaganda uh, sites. Now, That's how people cheat and trick the system to make it not work. This was done largely without paid communication. This is something that if you are doing an advocacy project, for example, that might be a 20 week sort of project, you would want to really keep in mind, these are the things that if you're doing a nonprofit, a church, et cetera, paying attention to how referral affects what everybody sees, how the content on your page matters makes a huge difference. I'll, another example from my own church. Our, my church, uh, Vienna Presbyterian, uh, 12 years ago, had a youth pastor that had inappropriate relationships with some of the youth. And it was a big, Washington Post did a big story on it. Okay. And so Washington Post did a big, big story about this. <clears throat> that then put it at the top of rank. Eight years later, the first thing you would still find if you were looking for Vienna Presbyterian, or Vienna Presbyterian worship, etc., was this story about sexual abuse in the church. And of, of note, like the church actually did a remarkably good kind of real open discussion, repentance like they, they, they did a lot of good things after the problem, but this was all that was coming up about the church and they couldn't understand it. And so, and I couldn't understand it. Cause I was like, this is getting kind of, you know, this is just bad. Every time you look is every single one of those stories. And it, the reason it was working was that's kind of, if you're searching for a church and you see that, that's kind of sticky click uh, sort of content. But Google understands recency. And so things that are older, it starts to devalue over time. The reason that story was sticking was the church had accidentally not made some of its pages crawlable to the Internet. It's a feature you can do when you build a site. They have volunteers build their site. they like, oh, privacy. We don't want to have our stuff open. This is a church thing. And they closed it off. So a couple of the key pages... That people were actually looking that matched the keywords people were searching for our um, site. Google wasn't allowed to access and index. So, all it was able to show was this story. And because the story was sticky, people kept clicking on it. As soon as we turned those pages on, and as soon as I said, like, here's what people are searching for, create a couple other pages on this, and that will match, the story dropped off the first page. And it was like in a month and a half, it had been there for eight years. And it was just because we understood um, this system. The Russians are behind it. I talked to you all about some of the racial pieces. This is how um, the how it was being weaponized against communities of color in particular. Um, this is a, what happened to the African-American. Thankfully, this has started kicking ticking up, but when we did this at the end of the summer, um, This is African-Americans' belief in getting the flu vaccine. They were targeting the flu vaccine last year to undermine trust in vaccines and the COVID vaccine. And you can see in April, like it was nearly all people, most African, the vast, vast majority of African-Americans were saying, we plan to get the, I'll, I'll probably get the flu vaccine. And then over this period of time, it dropped way down because of these influence um, campaigns. Talked about the Spanish stuff a little bit last week, too. The Russians were cre- are creating massive amounts of content in Spanish for Americans on COVID and getting much higher engagement rates on that content than traditional Spanish language because of how they're building and optimizing it. And um, the Univision had a 10% audience overlap um, with, 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 with RT. RT, which is the main Russian propaganda site. Um, you know, 25% of the Russian propaganda news sites traffic in America is is in Spanish. Um, all of these things affect outcomes. This is kind of how they do propaganda, just as an FYI. And jab, by the way, if you read anything about vaccines right now and you see a news story that talks about jabs instead of vaccinations, that's become one of the big keywords, just small things like that where they'll shift content this was RT's page on a single day. Most of what they have is true, and then they'll just do these things. They'll they'll cheat on their most populars. They reframe certain stories to just build this narrative of distrust um, for uh, for systems and people. And again, when they're drawing this through, this was translated. This is the Spanish page. When they when this is what all their Spanish viewers are seeing over time you start um, driving these attitudinal shifts. Uh, Our response in Georgia, we did a bunch of audiences, but here I'll just show you some of the the way that we countered this was responding um, with a different counter narrative that matched those same needs. In the community that was more militia, MAGA types that was actively engaged in disinformation, we ran ads like this. This ad was our single most clicked ad. You'll see there's no ask. There's no call for action on it. But we were having rates that were 100 times normal click-through rates away from InfoWars, Epic Times, Breitbart to this ad that took them to our Shining City on the Hill um, destination um, website. Uh, We also ran a campaign over Christmas that you see kind of this different approach. This was on Breitbart. And these messages, not saying you idiot, why are you reading this? Or this is all lies or, you know, we should do X, Y, and Z. It was just providing these, these different better values that people jumped to to get away from. And then we ran more positive uh, messaging and messaging to our community on the disinformation sites uh, about a third of the traffic on disinformation sites is our strong Democrats and minority communities. You know, 10% of Fox News's traffic is Black. We talked about some of that and some of the reasons why before. But we ran these ads to those communities. Um, Mr. Rogers was one of the most popular, along with the positive kind of faith message. And It was because people were just like, this is such a shift from what they see most of the time, especially what they see when they're on disinformation. They jumped at it to get away. Um, And then we also ran kind of uh, a straight on voter protection campaign, which we were targeting, kind of showing support. And the whole point of this campaign was to make people feel like, like we had their backs. These would be on pages that were involved in doxing on content we know, what we knew was voter intimidation um, type content. And then let's see, for sake of time. So what we were shifting in this experience was like people would be doing this. They'd see this ad, they'd click here, and they'd move from reading about this next to reading um, John McCain's concession, watching John McCain give his concession speech and reading Reagan talk about, you know, a shining city on a hill and what we are and should be, um, as, as Americans. I'll do, let's see, two more principles, then I'll stop. Um, when we do this stuff and why we need to engage is as we engage into spaces, especially spaces that are abandoned and empty, um, we not only meet the people there and provide them an alternative, our engagement and effort teaches algorithms something differently and pushes out bad alternative content that the, the difference, the difference between, you know what, we need to talk about sex at youth group because they're going to hear about it somewhere. And we need to make sure they hear from us too. That's a part of this. But if you imagine, like, if you were talking, the fact of talking about sex in youth group meant that they were half as likely to ever hear a song on the radio or have some porn suggested to them or something else like that's the new level of the system we're dealing with. It's not only, we can't ignore communities. We have to engage. We have to make sure we meet people where they are. It's now we are working in a system. We're doing so teaches that entire system, what those people want, which makes them much more likely to see things like what you were trying to do and much less likely, especially, for underserved communities that are being targeted with disinformation to,
0: um, to, to to see that. So, Eric, we're so grateful. You're very generous. Um, you're really generous to give us this time.
1: We need to expand the ideas that we're doing, have more people adopt them, take them to the next level of application and insight and everything else, too. So thank you all for all your time, for taking time. Thank you, your Eric. You're a good friend years. and you're
0: an yeah. outstanding presenter. Thanks a lot.
1: I have uh, really enjoyed and been honored by um, the time we've
0: spent together, uh, David, and all you've done.